Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Catch and Shoot 2.0 goes well with both red and white and is perfect with the workout of your choice. Our hosts are Aaron Berlin, a former Kansas Jayhawk who believes the Orlando Magic will win the championship. Eventually. (laughs) His partner is Otto Strong, a man who has covered the NBA since before Dennis Rodman got his first tattoo. Fellas? Thanks so much, Darlene. It is myself and my guy, Otto Strong, here, and you're listening to Catch and Shoot 2.0. Before I welcome in Otto, let's give you a quick rundown of what's going to happen on today's show. Jam-packed show. We mentioned last week that the Heatles were celebrating the 10-year anniversary of that get-together. We will talk with Ethan Skolnick, who covered that team. We also are going to talk to Zachary Benny. He is an epidemiologist, and he is going to chat about the challenges the NBA is going to have making one bubble work. But all of a sudden, Otto, not only is one bubble not enough, now a second one has entered the fray. The NBA is talking about having some sort of Delete 8 tournament that will take place in the Windy City. Otto, I have so many thoughts on this. They're already having so many challenges just getting one underway. Why do we need to throw in a second one into the fray before we even see if a first one can get underway? I have no idea. So, <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, uh, so, you know, we, we've talked about this before, before I'm in the, in the Fort Worth market in down in Texas and, uh, the best player for the Texas Rangers, Joey Gallo, uh, was t- tested positive. Um, the FC soccer team, the FC Dallas team is out of their entire tournament. I mean, that's just one market, one market. So I, you know, I, I think, I think we're, we're, we're the, the, the universal, we are biting off more than we could chew here. Uh, let's, let's see one tournament get across the finish line and let's just, and that'll be a good day. And, and Otto, that's a good point because we asked Seth Partno about this very same situation last week. He goes, you know, we posed the question as what happens if you are in the NBA playoffs and one of your star players or three of your star players test positive for COVID-19, then all of a sudden, they are quarantined. You don't have them. You're running on a thin roster. And now all of a sudden you don't have your stars participating in the NBA playoffs. And, you know, he was like, there are obstacles and there are challenges that every team has to overcome throughout the course of a season. But that's, that's not the same as what we're talking about in this situation, right, Otto? Like, oh. take a look at a team like the Nets, for instance. Spencer Dinwiddie, test positive for a second time for COVID-19, will not travel with the team to Orlando. That is a big deal because it's a risk that didn't need to be taken initially, right? Exactly. And the other thing that I think we're all to some degree forgetting a little bit, we're not talking about a, a strained hammy or an ACL or an or an Achilles, as bad as the last one is, and it's really bad. We're talking about something that will, could potentially have lifelong 
uh, implications for not just the player, but the player's family and everyone in the player's orbit. So I, sometimes I feel like we're taking this stuff just a little bit too lightly to say, well, they have a COVID and they'll recover. Well, will they? Like, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a so, lot so, there that, good. So, so a, a perfect instance is Landry Shaman, you know, of the Los Angeles Clippers tested positive for COVID-19. The first thing you see, and this is not to get on my soap opera of what happens on social media and how insecure some people can be, but the first comment you see from people is, oh, he's going to be okay in two weeks. That, that's not the issue. And that's not the thing that, you know, you, sometimes you just feel like you're trying to pound issues into people's heads and they're not getting it across, but it's not about Landry Shamit having it right. It's about all the other things that can happen with him being infected with COVID-19. And that's where some of this stuff is going on. Yeah. I mean, they're, look, they're, they're exactly the long range uh, effects of which are not entirely known, but um you know, there's a player and the player's family, and, and sometimes there are kids and older older relatives involved. I mean, we don't have to, you know, go too deep uh, into the the player roster to know uh, Carl Anthony Towns' mom. For those who've who've um, forgotten, it's because you know things are happening at a breakneck speed right through here, and you know we have a major star in the NBA. His mom, you know, died of this. There are other players whose parents have had it and have you know recovered, but but still, this is this is not something to be taken lightly. Absolutely. And for a lot of people wondering why Chicago would be the second site, the NBA has a longstanding relationship with the city of Chicago. Not only do they traditionally have their NBA draft combine there, but there are courts all throughout the city. My question on that front, Otto, is one, how are you going to get players to buy into a delete eight scenario when you're already having issues with high-level players who are on perceived playoff teams just making the trip to Orlando, how are you going to get those teams to convene for games in Chicago that don't mean anything? And two, if you're a player, why would you take that risk? You know, what benefit is it for you? Well, look, Unless I, I, you're a free agent and you're trying to show that you can hit some kind of number milestone or some kind of point per game, right? Right. But I mean, I, I know we got uh, uh, Dr. Benny kind of coming in, in in a second here, but but real quick, I'm not really sure I see the upside here. I mean, it, it's a it's a noble, um, you know, idea to 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 give those teams a, a little and their fans a little something to to, you know, to uh, tune into and to shoot for and to aspire to. But yeah, I think it's really, really rusky. Yeah, Otto, the challenges are tenfold, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that. But let's talk about some of the other challenges that the NBA is facing with their first bubble here in Orlando as we welcome in Zach Benny, an epidemiologist. <laughs> Dr. Zachary Benny is an epidemiologist and a professor at Emory University, and now it is my pleasure to welcome him on the show. Zach, how's it going? Oh, on the sliding scale that we're all grading on, I'm great, Aaron. How are you? <laughs> and, and you know, that, that that scale is sliding more and more each way, depending on which part of the country you're living in. And right now I'm here in Central Florida where this bubble for the NBA season is about ready to take place. So it's going to be interesting to see. We'll get into that in a little bit further. But, you know, let's start off with something basic. I think we've all heard the term epidemiologist, but very few besides those who partake in the matter actually know what it is. Can you just kind of describe exactly what your role is on a day-to-day basis and the things you're looking at? Yeah, that's a very fair question. Uh, A lot of my students, uh, you know, I teach undergraduates and I don't teach epidemiology, uh, or at least I haven't yet at my current institution. So a lot of them may not have had any experience with an epidemiologist. But uh, basically what we do is we look at population health. 
So we look at patterns in large groups of people and try and figure out why something is causing something else or what's associated with what. So, for example, uh, we, uh, you know, sort of epidemiology, most people think about infectious disease. I actually think it's much broader than that. But the classic example is like we see a cluster of cases of a disease in a population and we try to figure out where it came from. Where did the outbreak start? And then we also uh, work with other public health professionals on ways to uh, control uh those, those outbreaks. But epidemiologists also study everything from chronic disease like heart disease and cancer to uh, what I focus on, which is sports injuries. So really, we just uh, do statistics around anything to do with human health or, or even beyond. Okay, and let's dive into that a little bit because you have a unique perspective on both sides. You know, not only have you written about various NFL entries over the past, you've also worked in Major League Baseball. When you look at these organizations and these leagues attempting to come back right now, what is your biggest fear? My biggest fear is that there's simply still too much virus in the United States. Uh, if you look at other countries where sports have been able to come back, places like Germany, New Zealand, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, you see areas that really crushed their curves. If we flattened it into a mesa, like a flat mountain, then these other countries flattened them into a pancake. It's really not comparable. And the more disease you have around you out there, the harder it is to take any step back towards normality because there are so many sick people around who can spread the disease and stress and overwhelm uh, public health and medical systems. So I'm afraid that uh, sports, team sports, particularly with lots of people, um, are going to have a hard time and they're going to need more expensive, more difficult and more unpleasant plans uh, to stand any hope of coming back uh, given the situation in the United States right now. It's uh, we're reaping what we sowed. We had a, leak, a late and weak response and uh, we're paying the price. And Zachary, that's a really good point because, you know, the other leagues that you're talking about, one specifically is the baseball league that's uh, being part participated in in South Korea right now. And so when you say that term flatten the curve, I, I think for a lot of people, you know, that has become a buzzword and what they understand is, yeah, we sheltered in place for 30 to 45 days and we helped flatten the curve. No, that's not what these countries did. Can you explain a little bit further exactly what they did to get their sports back sooner? Well, what they did was a few things. Number one is they acted early before things were uh, as out of control as they may have gotten here. They had a nationally coordinated strategy rather than uh, relying on individual states with wildly uh, diverging policies uh, like we did here in the U.S., you know, the virus doesn't care about state borders, right? So if you're not coordinating across state borders, then even if some states get it under control, other states aren't. And what they did was they stuck at it until they saw a very, very low number of cases and had the infrastructure in place to do a lot of testing and identify cases quickly, isolate them, and trace their contacts or trace them back to where they got sick and identify where an outbreak was happening in near real time or within a matter of days. Uh, most areas of this country did not stick with it long enough. We, I feel like we sort of set this calendar time requirement 
And when it got around to Memorial Day, we just decided we were tired of it. When the truth is, as Dr. Fauci has said many times, the virus sets the timetable. We had to wait until uh, the number of virus cases was much, much lower. We sort of just got to a plateau and then decided that was good enough. And uh, that has had predictably disastrous results. Yeah, and it's been very frustrating from a number of standpoints. But let's talk about sports, specifically the NBA right now. And, you know, you mentioned it. The cases are spiking all across the country, and one place where they're really spiking is here in Central Florida, where I live. It's where this NBA bubble is going to take place. When you look at the NBA specifically, the idea of having a sterile environment where everyone comes in, they test negative for this, is something like this, what the NBA is trying to construct and all the measures that they're trying to implement, is this realistic? Because I look at another league that's essentially trying to do the same thing, and that would be Major League Soccer, who has already had a handful of cases test positive here in Central Florida in just the last few days. Well, you know what the interesting thing with MLS is, is that their positives have nothing to do with Orlando. Their positives, uh, just based on the timing, look to have been outbreaks that started in their home markets and then that they brought into the bubble in Orlando. So... What the NBA needs to learn from that is something that every expert has known for a long period of time, which is that if you're setting up a bubble, getting people into the bubble uninfected is the trickiest part. Once they're in there, you've kind of got a plan for how you're going to keep the virus out. But getting everybody in uninfected in the first place is very difficult. And what I'm advocating for uh, is sort of an airlock to the bubble, which I think would have helped in Major League Soccer. So, for example... Uh, Dallas, uh, FC Dallas, what they needed to do was isolate in a hotel in their market for a week before they went to Orlando and given any cases on their team time to rear their heads because this disease can take three to five or even more days to show itself on a positive test after you've been infected. Otherwise, what can happen is you get unlucky, a bunch of people get infected just before you leave, they test negative when you enter the bubble, and then test positive two days later after they've been having contacts throughout the bubble. That is my biggest worry for any bubble plan right now, uh, including the NBA. When you mention airlock, can can you dive into that a little bit further just for our listeners? Yes. So what that would mean is taking every team before they travel— putting everybody together in a hotel for about five to seven days, which would give any cases that are incubating time to show themselves in a positive test so that they'll show themselves before the team enters the bubble. So the key is to get everybody on a team in a location where they're no longer picking up new cases from the community and their daily lives and all the virus around them Okay, and then give any cases that are already there time to show themselves so you can remove them and then you can enter everybody into the bubble. Now, the trick around that five to seven day period is if you allow interaction within the team while they're in that hotel so guys can like go and play ping pong or pool or something with each other, then the worry is that any positive test has to restart that five to seven day clock. Whereas if you say, hey, everybody, you're going in that hotel for five to seven days, you've got to stay isolated in your own room so that you can't spread any infection that you do have to anybody else, 
then any positives, you can just remove those players and staff, but everybody else can continue on without resetting the clock. But of course, that's very psychologically unpleasant. Who wants to go into essentially solitary confinement uh, for a week? It's not pleasant. Maybe you could compromise and do small groups, you know, two or three guys who can all connect with each other. And if any case appears in that group, you take that group out, but everybody else can still go. You know, maybe you could do something like that. But uh, but that's what's going to be necessary to keep cases out of the bubble, I fear, given the amount of disease we have right now. Well, and, and that's initially my first thought, you know, is I have friends who work in Major League Baseball and work in Major League Soccer. And, you know, the first thing they say is that while these teams are practicing and they're on the verge of coming back, that not all the players necessarily have buy-in. You know, some of them still think that wearing a mask is silly. Some of them still think that social distancing is overblown. When, when you have 36 people per team for 22 teams in a bubble atmosphere, and then you also throw in staff, personnel, you know, that, that's well over a few thousand people that are going to be quarantined in these hotels in this bubble environment. Not having one person or a group or maybe 50 people not taking this seriously can seriously affect this whole strategy, can it? Yes, it can. Uh, and that's a fear, but that's where you need to work. And I think the NBA has done a good job of this. Other leagues, maybe not so much. Uh, but you need to work to build trust between the league and the players. And everybody needs to feel like they're on the same page. You should engage uh, veterans, willing veterans, to mentor uh, younger players and staff members and say, you know, hey, everybody, look, we are in this together. We're part of a team. We're only as strong as our weakest link. If you sneak out, you're putting the whole team at risk, and we really, really need you not to do that. Okay? I think that's probably the most important thing. And then, uh, you know, you can also have very strict punishments for anybody who does uh, violate it. Uh, I mean, the NBA's requirement is basically that you're out of the tournament for two weeks. So, you know, maybe that will make you think, hey, maybe this night out at the bar or the nightclub isn't worth it if I'm knocked out of the playoffs for two weeks. You know, so it's it's a combination of those two things. It can't be all stick or carrot, certainly. Uh, you need to have strict regulations, but but really you need to set an environment of working together and pulling in the same direction. So what red, li red lines does the NBA need to draw in order to protect their players? Yeah, red lines are interesting. So I assume by that you mean like what would be too many cases? What should force yeah. them to shut down? And there's a few things that you want to think about there. One is how many people were getting sick just out in the community, right? Uh, when they did their initial testing over the first week, uh, they found about 7% of players and about 1% of staff actually tested positive. So if you're going into the bubble and over that same period of time, you see less than 7% of people, of players and less than 1% of staff testing positive, then you could argue that you're not creating a higher risk environment. But if it goes above that, uh, you need to be very, very worried. Okay. Uh, and you need to, you know, really think about, are we creating more risk than, uh, then is offset by any benefits for, for these players and for our league and for our staff, by the way, who have a lower baseline risk, it seems, across leagues of getting sick than players do, presumably due to different behaviors. The other thing you got to look out for are clusters, outbreaks, three or four cases on a team in rapid succession. Even if that doesn't seem like a lot, three or four cases, if you don't shut it down right then, can turn into 10 or 15 or 20 really, really fast. And because 
this disease can hide itself for several days before you even know it's been transmitting, uh, depending on the frequency and turnaround time of the testing that you're doing, you need to have a pretty low threshold for shutting down a team. If you see clusters on multiple teams throughout the bubble, that's when you need to think about shutting down the league. And you also need to make sure that you're not sort of being the guy in the mansion on the hill staring down on the peasants in Orlando. So by that, I mean, if you've got tests and nobody in Orlando can get a test result within three to five days, um, you know, you need to think about that. You need to wake up and look at yourself in the mirror every morning and wonder, are we okay to keep doing this? No, Zachary, one of the things I keep going back to is you kind of mentioned it. Quarantining these players in hotels, whether it's five to seven days, well, some of these teams are going to be there close to two and a half to three months. Um, from an isolation standpoint and from just an overall mental standpoint, how taxing is that going to be on some of these players? H how big of a worry should that be for physicians as well as just, you know, keeping these players in this kind of environment where they're isolated from the rest of the world. And if they do obey by all these strict rules, what kind of outcome can that have on a player? You know, I'm not a mental health expert, so I don't know, but I imagine it's not going to be a particularly pleasant experience. Uh, the NBA is working, I know, after the first round of the playoffs, they're talking about bringing a limited number of family members in. I think that that's fine as long as they undergo the same sort of airlock procedure and you make sure that you're not introducing cases into the bubble that way. Uh, so you do need to worry about that. But, uh, you know, maybe the psychological uh, and emotional benefits and performance benefits, perhaps, uh, for players uh, would, would offset that added risk. The last thing that I'll say is that um, I did read an interview the other week with a psychologist, I think, or a counselor of some kind who works with the NBPA, I believe. And he was saying that he really saw this as an opportunity for players to overcome challenges and that he was actually framing this in a, a positive way as a possible a positive experience, maybe turning a negative into a positive. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but um, that really made me question you know, my initial thinking, which was that this was all just bad and unpleasant and horrible. And, and his perspective was, well, maybe there, there could be some upsides as well. So I, you know, I would certainly defer to him more on that question because I'm not an expert, but uh, I figured I'd share that thing that I read that kind of surprised me. No, that, that, that's great information. And, you know, it's nice to have a little bit of optimism in a time like this, where I think we're all just trying to work through everything and kind of understand things the best that we can. And you certainly helped us do that today. Hey, doctor, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us today. We really appreciate it. Hey, no problem, guys. Take care and stay safe. All right. That was dope. Well, we have a very special guest with us right now. It is Ethan Skolnick, who uh, covered the Miami Heat uh, back when uh, LeBron took his talents to South Beach, and he is currently the content editor for Five Reasons Sports in Miami. Ethan, how are you doing? Good to be with you. I'm actually uh, walking the streets of Fort Lauderdale right now, so social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> good. Oh, got that mask on. Good, good, good. Uh, so... Yes, we are. I, I mean, I cannot believe it's been 10 years since uh, since that that press conference in Greenwich, <laughs> uh, the hotbed of all NBA press conferences. So so where were you that night from what you can recall? How did that how did that unfold in your world? Well, it was interesting I, at the time. Uh, I was still a columnist for the, uh, the, the South Florida Sun Sentinel based in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, 
Uh, and I was covering the Dolphins and the Heat primarily, but I wasn't assigned to one team because there's kind of a general columnist. Um, you know, we had heard some rumors, and one of the reasons that I thought LeBron might be coming to Miami, um, other than just the general rumors and sources, et cetera, was that the, the Miami Heat had contacted the Sun Sentinel to take out an ad uh, with LeBron, Dwayne, and Chris Bosh together. And so I kind of got wind of that early in the day that the Heat were preparing for this because they had asked for these ads of the big three. But then later in the day, they contacted the Sentinel and said to take LeBron out and just go with Bosch and Wade. So <laughs> I'll be honest, I got thrown off a little bit. Um, I, I, I sort of had geared myself up to the fact that LeBron was going to be coming to Miami. And then all of a sudden it was like, oh, he's not coming to Miami. And then all of a sudden he was coming to Miami. And, um, you know, when it happened, it changed everything. I mean, it changed things for me personally, too, because, you know, I made a decision. Uh, well, I, I was covering the, uh, you know, the, the celebration that the Heat got a lot of, you know, gruff for, you know, um, you know when, which was really not meant to be what it was. And when I was there, I was talking to George Sedano, I've been friends with him for a long time. And I said to George, you know, I need to cover this every day. Um, this is going to be different. And it was that week that the Palm Beach Post, where I had worked before, uh, reached out to me and said to me, you know, uh, you know, we want you to come back and be the primary columnist covering the Heat. So that's what I did. So I did that for the next three years. Um, and then when uh, I moved to Bleacher Report uh, and covered their last year together for Bleacher Report, and, and, uh, and obviously then, you know, then LeBron left. But, yeah, basically I was with them home and road um, for all four seasons. Gotcha, gotcha. So let's talk about this term that that uh, that was created uh, when LeBron went to Miami, the, the Heatles. Where, <laughs> where 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 does that come from, Ethan? Uh, it kind of came from me. Um, <laughs> I I I I've I, I said a lot of things in columns that I should have trademarked. That was one of them. I wrote it in a column. It was kind of an offhand comment that this was going to be like the Heatles, and. Uh, you know, LeBron tended to read everything, particularly from the new writers that he didn't really know very well at the time. And the very next day, uh, he was talking about how he was printing Heatles t-shirts. So I, I kind of I got caught in the machine there. Um, that <laughs> I never really got proper credit for that. But that's all right. We moved on. Uh, and they were the Heatles. I mean, you know, I went to, I pretty much covered, you know, all but about 10 of their road games over four seasons. And everywhere we went, when you went to hotels, um, there would be lines out the door waiting for them by the buses, go to practice facilities. You know, we wouldn't publicize where they were, but people found them. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, it was a show. It was very, you know, I think really the only comparable show uh, would have been, you know, what we just saw with last dance with the bulls. I, I, I don't, I don't know, honestly, that we'll ever see anything like it again. Um, and the reason for that is because it coincided with the explosion of social media. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Jordan's bulls didn't deal with that. You know, and so this was the most scrutinized team in the world uh, for basically three to four years. You know, ESPN, you know, moved four writers down here um, to do their index, as you know. Right. And, and so, you know, and I was competing against them alone. It was an interesting experience. But, you know, they, they were the biggest story. Where every city we went to, and, and especially that first year, you know, not just the scene in Cleveland on December 2nd, 2010, where we went to hide for cover because batteries were being thrown. But also, you know, you'd go to places like Portland, Memphis, you know, City, Phoenix, places that LeBron had no interest in going to. So there was no reason for them to be angry at him. And it was still, 
you know, he was a villain. And it was just, it was a different experience, I think, than anybody's covered. And like I said, I don't really think we'll see it again, to be mm-hmm. honest. I, I think this is a, it, it, it coincided with it. You know, LeBron was a very polarizing figure at the time. He's not now as much, but he was at the time. And, and he was adjusting to being a villain. And I think that kind of, you know, led to his implosion in the 2011 finals, where I think the pressures of everything he dealt with that season kind of hit him at once. And, and that's why we saw that very uncharacteristic performance, which, which basically cost him a championship. Right, right. So uh, let's talk about that a little bit. So you're there for, you know, the, the championship that they were supposed to have won. And then years earlier, they won the championship they many thought that they were going to lose with the Dwayne Wade right. led, led team. How, how do you, could you compare the kind of the finals runs of the, of the two teams, obviously one, one, and one did not, but as far as the kind of the, uh, the, the ascension of, of the, of those two teams in the playoffs. Well, I mean, I think if you look at the 2006 team with Wade, um, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people thought they could have won the year before uh, the, uh, the 2005 team was actually better than the 2016 but Dwayne pulled a ribcage muscle in game five against Detroit in the Eastern Conference Finals. And in this game six, they got blown out. Game seven, he wasn't really right. And Shaq wasn't very happy that Stan Van Gundy uh, went to Dwayne down the stretch of those games. And that kind of soured the relationship between Shaq and Stan. And that played out the next year. The next year was kind of a bleep show, to be honest. Um, but they just they got it together. They were 2-2 in the first round against Chicago. And Gary Payton and Dwayne were screaming at each other in front of us. And then suddenly Dwayne just went on a tear for the ages um, that basically carried them for six weeks. I mean, Dwayne said it himself recently. The big three teams were better, um, particularly the 2012-2013 team, the team that won 27 straight, uh, you know, that won 66 total. That team was mauling people um, mm-hmm. during that streak. And, and, and really, I, I will make the argument um, that it's the best LeBron we ever saw and will ever see. Um, those 27 games. He was, you know, he didn't really connect with Spo the first year. The second year they had a conversation halfway through and Eric said to him, will you let me coach you? And and I think from there, uh, there was some trust that developed. And Eric knew how to unlock LeBron, um, mm-hmm. you know, to put him at the four, which LeBron really didn't want to play. But he kind of, you know, he acquiesced to it enough. He didn't like it when he played against David West. But for the most part, like, he acquiesced to it, and, and there, so it was a totally – it was LeBron at the four playing with shooters um, really at the peak of his power. I mean, if you look at it, he shot like 62% during that streak. It was just insanity. And, you know, and then I always remember, you know, they lost to Chicago. Danny Ainge made some comments. Pat Riley took offense, too, and said, you know, shut the bleep up and manage your own team. And the next night, LeBron had six threes in the first half. He was just – I just don't think – We'll, we'll ever see that again from him because I think it was the point where, you know, his physical skills were still at that level, but yep. mentally he'd caught up. Mm-hmm. And I think now since then we've seen the mental side has gotten better and better and better, but he's not, he's not quite the physical, you know, the athletic player that he was at that time. So I, I really think that was the best LeBron. So, so in talking about best LeBron, do you have a favorite moment, uh, a LeBron moment from his time in Miami? I mean, there's so many, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, you know, the scoring 61 against Charlotte um, was pretty amazing. I, you know, it's, I, I mean, he was, he was pretty much unstoppable during that stretch. Um, 
I, I think that, you know, but you also look at it, it, it was his ability, like I said, to be incredibly efficient. I mean, he, he and Dwayne were having these contests where, you know, who, you know, they would, they would basically owe each other things if they didn't shoot 50% in the game. And LeBron was at this point where he was at such a high level that he could just pick and choose his shots. And we'd watch him on possessions and he would, he would pass on shots that were great shots for anybody else because he was looking for the perfect shot because he didn't want to ruin his shooting percentage. Mm-hmm. But it's like we let him off the hook because he'd still end up the game with 35, 12, and 7. Right. Um, it, it, was just, it was just incredible. I mean, I, I think, you know, I had a lot of personal moments with LeBron over time. I kind of saw him uh, evolve and get comfortable with being a villain. Uh, it was never easy for him. I remember we were in San Antonio, I think, the third year. And it was one of those days where Skip Bayless or somebody was making ridiculous comments about him and getting famous off him. And he looked at me. He was about to go in the shower. He looked at me. He goes, one of these days, I'm just going to snap on all of them. And it was – I think he had 42 that night. But but that that's kind of where we were. I mean, it was it was a once-in-a-lifetime kind of, you know, experience. And um, But there were so many things with the Big Three era that I think, again, won't be repeated. From a sociological perspective, um, the things that happened, okay, whether it was the Harlem Shake video that they decided to do on an off day, or that. whether it was yeah, or whether it was them all wearing hoodies after the death of, of you know, the, the murder of Trayvon Martin, yeah. um, you know, and them all getting together in a hotel. Like, what we're seeing now, like, that team was ahead of its time in that regard. Mm-hmm. And it was LeBron learning to be comfortable in his own skin. And I think now we've seen that fully flourish, you know, but it really started then. It started with his association, I think he felt a comfort in, in numbers on that team where Dwayne being there to kind of absorb some of the criticism allowed him to step out a little bit more. And and one of my favorite moments with Dwayne during that time was I remember we were at a shoot around in Brooklyn and he, he was with me and a couple of other reporters. And he said, you know, I want, this was before LeBron won. This was the second year. He said, I, I want to, I think sometimes that I want to win this for LeBron more than he wants it for himself. Mm. And, and I think that's the kind of kinship that the two of them had. And that played out because after LeBron left, I was sent to Cleveland for most of the next year, 14, 15, to cover LeBron. So I was going back and forth. And I had a one-on-one with LeBron before his 30th birthday. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, I miss Dwayne. Yeah. You know, that first year in Cleveland, he missed having somebody who was a peer, um, who was a little more experienced than him, who could kind of pull him through things. And instead in Cleveland, he had Kyrie. And Kyrie at that stage, and I don't think he is now either, but at that stage, was not ready to co-lead with LeBron. Exactly. And it just, it was a very, very different experience for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk about Wade. So, I mean, Wade is, is seems like he's a, a, a larger-than-life figure in Miami. Um, what is it about Wade that Miami, the folks from Miami love so much? Well, I mean, a lot of it was performance, but a lot of it was vulnerability. Um, you know, Dwayne sort of rose to stardom with Shaq pulling him along a little bit. And mm-hmm. Shaq is, a, is as, as you know, funny as Shaq is and all the rest of this, you know, Shaq is hard to get your arms around, you know, literally and figuratively, right? Like Shaq <laughs> is, you don't look and say, I could be Shaq. So in comparison, particularly the younger demo here that had seen so little winning from the Dolphins for 20 years and couldn't associate with them at all, clung to Dwayne because Dwayne was, I mean, you can look at Dwayne and Dwayne's, you know, he, there was a certain innocence to his look, um, but, but a gracefulness, but also a toughness and a resilience. And I think, you know, him going through the injuries and, you know, fall down eight, get up nine and all that kind of stuff 
um, I, I think really endeared him. You know, I always say with Dwayne, his first couple of years, I didn't have anything to talk to him about because he really wasn't a lot there. And now you look at what he's become, where, where he's, you know, a public voice on virtually everything. Um, they saw him grow up, you know, and not only did they see him grow up and then basically win a championship by himself, but then they saw him leave, they saw the acrimony, and then they saw him come home. And, and one of the things we talked about on our podcast this week on Five on the Floor is that as much as nobody liked it at the time, it turned out for the best for a lot of reasons. It allowed people to appreciate Dwayne when he was gone. Mm-hmm. It allowed him to have the send-off he should have. And also at the same time, when they were going through it, um, you know, for the heat, it allowed them to reset um, a little bit. And I don't know if they'd given Dwayne the Kobe contract if they would have been able to reset. Mm-hmm. So, so now years, years after the Heatles, what, what, is, what is their legacy? I mean, I think they, will, they won't be known as the greatest team of this era because it's probably going to be Golden State. Um, but I think they'll be known as the most important. Um, I think they are the first ever real, true social media NBA sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, so I, I, and I think that is – and I think they're a team that – I think most people on the outside will look at them as a team that did not fulfill expectations simply because of the not one, not two, not three, not four, not five. Right. Um, but I think, I think there's going to be an appreciation over time for the difficulty of making it to four straight finals, um, the difficulty of winning two of them, mm-hmm. um, the kinship that the three top players had. I feel like over time, Chris Bosh has become more appreciated than he was when he was actually playing, uh, which is something that we, I tried to push that narrative when he was here, but it sort of took some time. Um, I think they're going to be known as a team that, you know, again, captured the imagination, not just locally, but internationally. I think they're more important, honestly, than any of the other championships since. Mm. And I think another key part of legacy is something you mentioned earlier, and that is the stance that they took after the death of Trayvon Martin. I mean, that was, I mean, that was, that was huge. That was not something we had seen uh, from superstars, at least right, th- right through here, going all the way back, sure, with Ali and, and others. But in, in that era, uh, that, that, is, that is something we hadn't seen before. Um, I want to ask you about what's coming up on Five Reasons. Yeah, I appreciate that. So basically, we're, we're a platform that has kind of tried to blend established journalists, um, old heads like myself. I hate to call myself that, but kind of am, uh, with what I call families which are people who built their own brands just being very, very dedicated and educated, you know, analysts of teams. Um, and, and they have access, you know, they had, they didn't have access to locker rooms, but, but they have access to statistics, to video, all that kind of stuff. And what I tried to do is five reasons is take those people and then get them credentialed, um, essentially. And so we've gotten, you know, we had three Super Bowl credentials. We had three Super Bowl credentials. The NBA All-Star game, we have three to the Heat, three to the Dolphins, and I've got more than 50 people in my network, and essentially it's sort of trying to colonize to a certain degree social media. Um, and so, you know, I think what we're finding is we're finding new voices who don't really have a, a, a place to go right now, because um, the old way used to be the way I did it, which is you get out, you go to grad school, you come out, you start covering high school games, and, you know, suddenly you've got a, you know, a job, you know, in a newspaper. That doesn't exist anymore, really. Right. So, we 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 are trying to we, we say we're trying to change the game a little bit. You know, we're building out the concept in South Florida and Miami, and I'm hoping I can take the concept to some other places. Well, Ethan, um, good luck to you, and I, I I'm grateful that you were able to uh, spend some time with us this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot.
Well, Otto, that was certainly a fun listen with you and Ethan. But, you know, the amazing thing is when you look at this, we're only a few days away from teams arriving here in Central Florida for the restart of the NBA campaign. It should be fun. What is your level and what is your confidence at this point that the NBA can pull this off? Um, you know, this is no nothing against the NBA. This is just kind of the, the virus and what we've seen in, in other sports and, and, and with other teams. I, I I would be amazed. I'd be shocked if the NBA got through its season without a major um, a major storyline here, which is to say, you know, an all star being you know going going down or having to be sidelined for for a period of time. Because as you know, we're not t- these aren't day to day situations. You're out. You're probably out for about two weeks, I'm guessing. And that's you know, once we get to the playoff stage, that's a series. And that, and then, and you know, and then come in all of the asterisk, uh, um, you know, conspirators, <laughs> and whether the season should take one or not. Um, yeah, you know, by, by the end of this thing, by the time we get to the NBA Finals, we could be playing five on four or four on three or a little three v three action to close out the NBA championship, which you know would be a lot of fun. It'd be very sad <laughs> too at the same time that the playoffs could be kind of watered down to something like that. But at the same time, Otto, you know, I, I think it's quality control, it's quality management, it's it's how you handle these types of situations. And from what we've already seen from teams having training camps in market, when one or two positive tests come up and those entire training camps shut down, that worries me about what happens once they finally get here to Central Florida. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. But you raised an interesting, something really interesting. So what if, just go, just go with this for a second, what if... It was down to LeBron and Giannis. Ooh, for like a one-on-one championship? Yes, wouldn't that be awesome? Man, those two already had such beef when it came to the All-Star game and just the fire and the competitive spirit between the two of them just wanting to win that game. Those two 1v1 for an NBA championship? Is it weird that I would take Giannis? No. I mean, look, you've you've got – I got a whole lot of reasons to, to, to go that route. Athletic, um, strong, younger, you know, if, if it went 40, 45 points deep, you know, I think he can score in a different way in a lot of different ways. I mean, but LeBron would probably just back him down. Right. Like, uh, well, take him into I'm, the post. That's why I'm going LeBron. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I'm going LeBron. But, but I mean, that would be phenomenal. You know, All right. if, yeah. you, if you had to close it some other way, that would be the way to do it. And and you heard it here first on Catch and Cheat 2.0. If the NBA Finals come down to a one-on-one scenario between the East and the West, I'm taking Giannis, you're taking Braun. We'll see who Done. wins. Done. <laughs> All right, that'll do it for us here on Catch and Shoot 2.0. Otto, it's always a lot of fun catching up with you. Special thanks to Ethan as well as Zach Denny for catching up on the show today. It was a lot of fun. Here's what's coming up on the Pure Hoops Media family this week. Monday, it's the best of Mike Weiss show. It's the Bill Walton part two and then if you didn't catch all of his episodes earlier from this year he's also going to have a best of coaches show coming up next week as well tuesday fans and adams continue to bring you quality guests after quality guests this week it is tom Izzo, an ncaa champion and of course hall of famer if you didn't catch monica's big news last week you have another opportunity to this week Monica is now joined by co-host King McClure, the former Baylor Bear. They will welcome on Jared Butler this week. They'll talk about Baylor's big run, their ascendance to a top five team in the NCAA, and also what it was like 
to be without an NCAA tournament this year. And of course, we'll wrap it up on Fridays with a Pure Hoops podcast with Eric Newman and BJ Armstrong. Just a reminder, if you guys like our shows, all that we ask is that you rate and subscribe and share it with all your friends. And we want to thank our producers, Scott Turkin and Bruce Bernstein, as well as our editor, Ben Wolfen. Uh, you know, you know where we are now. We're at that time where we really have to hunker down and, and continue to practice social distancing, wash hands, and wear the mask. The last I checked, uh, COVID-19 is not registered as a Democrat or Republican, so you really have no excuse but to wear a mask. So continue, folks. Be smart, be safe, be respectful. Thank you. Catch and Shoot 2.0 is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.